0: This is Carl Wheeler and some of you know Carl from back at Lookout when he's spoken there and um, Carl has been a pastor for a pretty long time I think and he's uh, married to April and has two grown children and he's currently the pastor at the refuge which I hear is a really cool church (laughs) not as cool as ours but pretty cool (laughs) um, anyway so uh, I would love to pray for Carl and um, we'll get going so father um I thank you for Carl. I just know um, the times when I've heard him speak, uh, I just have loved the way that he wrestles with scripture and with just the real stuff of life and um, has a love for you that comes through and through humor, through um, just him really taking your word and sifting it through life and um, just so appreciate each time when he shares pieces of his story and allows us to know him, but, but even more, Lord, know you through his story. So I pray that you would um, bless and anoint his words this morning and you prepare our hearts to hear um, the unique message that you have for each one of us because of this day and time and connection with where Carl is in his story and your word. So we give it all to you and ask that you would make it what you want it to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Francis.
1: Well, it's always nice to come back. I, I feel like I'm with uh, friends. It seems like about every three years, I sort of show up in your guys' life after the last for the last fifteen years almost. So yeah. It's kind of fun. I, uh, I I just a little. I got a, a little. I don't know if it's a disclaimer. Just trying to be honest. The the refuge is the least cool church you will ever go to. <laughs> we are so ragtag. My friend Kathy and I started about um, five, almost five years ago, and uh, and our our little faith shelter is comprised of a lot of people that um, sort of fit outside of maybe typical, normal, social, I don't know, comfortable places. So we have a lot of people who struggle with mental illness or addictions, and so I fit in quite well. And, but don't come thinking it's cool. It's not cool. It's fun. It's, it's always, I will always say this, it's always surprising, but not cool. Um, a little... I hate to do this, but it's kind of a little disclaimer, and, and that is that we're gonna have a conversation this morning. This is real, I am so sorry. What did I do wrong here, Ben? I, I, oh, I know what it is, you have a little clippy thing. Excuse me, yeah, would you fix it? It's gonna just drive me crazy. I like that you guys have staff that just do nothing but fix things for people, and that's just amazing, like stage hands or something. never fix my microphone. Well, I'm a special guest, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyhow, here's this, this disclaimer, is we're, we're going to be having this conversation this morning about what maybe, I don't know, the most famous story that Jesus tells, the story is so famous that some of the language kind of has seeped in even today into our culture. So when I say the word Good Samaritan, which is what we're going to talk about, you already know what that is in a sense, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, we, we know a little bit about the story so before we can get into that, it, I think it's important we sort of get an idea about what's, what's actually happening in this story. In, in, in Luke 10, where this story takes place, instead of picking up where we normally start the story, I want to just start the story three sentences before. In three sentences before, Jesus is talking to his father and he says this, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for revealing them to the childlike." I I want you to know that when someone asks a question that they already know the answer to, they're almost always sort of revealing that it's important to them that that you know where you stand. A question asked that somebody already knows the answer, and it could be, I mean it could be a legitimate, I suppose, sort of teaching method, but again, I mean there's the teacher and then there's the student, it becomes very clear. But mostly when somebody asks a question that they already know the answer to, I don't mean to be crude, but they're kind of being a smart ass so just imagine for a second just imagine you're you, you, maybe you were late coming this morning to church and so you're 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 speeding and you know you're speeding and you look in your rearview mirror and you see the lights and you pull over and the nice gentleman will come to your window and the the first thing he's going to ask you is do you know why i pulled you over now you don't want to say what you really want to say, like, hey, dude, if you've forgotten between your car and my car, I think, like, the Constitution says I don't have to say anything, or, you, you see, he's not asking the question because he doesn't know. He's not bewildered. Like, wouldn't that be weird? Like, he's kind of, you know, Barney Fife, going, hey, maybe you guys can work it out together. I don't know. Let's talk about this. Um, I don't know. Could, did you smell something on my breath? Did I We? I don't know. No, he's, he's kind of setting up who's in charge. When somebody asks a question to which they already know the answer, they're sort of being a smart ass. But it's also important you remember that they're not not looking for honesty. They're looking for correctness. Those two aren't always the same. I remember I was eight years old. My mom had just been remarried for about a little over a year and a half to my stepfather, and we were vacationing in Florida over the 4th of July. I was a child of the 60s. I, I, some of you that were born later than that, you have missed something. You see, 4th of July in the 60s meant something. You could, you could kill people with the stuff we could buy. Like, it was real firecrackers. It wasn't things that just made little sparks. Like, you could do damage. And it was totally appropriate in the 60s to give an 8-year-old child a bundle of that and let them go. And so my brother and I are out around our little cottage there in Florida and we are just blowing things up and I, and I had this brilliant idea. Like this is good stuff. This is just, I'm in eight years old so it's not like real sophisticated but I had this idea of a fantastic little joke to play on my mom. And so I told my brother, let's put a bunch of them together. And we kind of put it by the door and it made this enormous boom. And then I went into the house. This is good stuff. I went into the house with my hands over my face, just screaming at the top of my lungs. I mean, that's good stuff, right? I mean, that's funny. My stepdad did not... Very humorless man. And he beat me. Like, in the 60s, you could do that. You didn't go to jail. You just... And he did that. And then when he got done, I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, Do you think you'll ever do that again? And I thought that he knew I'm kind of a rotten kid. And I thought it was a test. I really did. And I knew that if I got the wrong answer, I was going to be in so much trouble. So I said, yes, I probably will. <laughs> and, he, and he beat me again. Because he wasn't looking for my honest answer. He was looking for the correct answer. And that leads us into our story. So the story begins like this, one day an expert, you got to just kind of savor some of the language, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Now, Jesus has been asked this question, the question is teacher what should I do to inherit eternal life, a legitimate question. And Jesus has been asked that question by, by people that have soft hearts and are wondering and want to know the truth. But this guy doesn't want to know the truth. What he wants to do is to prove to everybody that he's got the truth. He's got it dialed in. He's not sort of confused about this idea. He is a smart ass. And he's trying actually to embarrass this rebel rabbi in front of a group of people. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And this guy is an expert in religious law. This is, man, Jesus is playing right into his little trap. He knows his stuff. Man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus says. Do this. you will live man wanted to justify his actions and so he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor oh he just couldn't let it go and that's how we get into the story called the Good Samaritan before we begin because it's kind of the how we usually read this are you a good neighbor. I, I'm just looking around. It looks like a lot of nice people. You're all smiling at the appropriate places, standing, sitting, doing everything nicely. And, and my hunch is, I bet you are. And I, 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 I'm a little embarrassed, but I'm going to tell you I'm a good neighbor. And I can prove it. About six years ago, my wife and I were living in Lakewood. And we, we had this little ranch house. And the lady next to me was sort of a a very, she was a character and something sort of left over from the 60s. And she had this conviction that you should not cut anything, including all her sort of mongrel trees that were encroaching by 10, 15, 20 feet into my tiny little yard. I just had a little tiny yard. And her trees, which she believed you should never cut, were all on my side and dripping things. And so I went to her and I just said, hey, you know, just wondering, is there something we could, and by we, I mean you, do about that. (laughs) And she says to me, like she's quoting the law, no, my responsibility ends at my property line and it's your problem. (laughs) Crap, so I gotta live with this. Because I wanna be a good neighbor. Okay, now fast forward to, to just this year, My wife and I bought this little HUD house up in in North Glen, we're living there, and I've got four crabapple trees that are about 45 years old. Magnificent, huge trees. And so beautiful that I share them with my neighbor. And my neighbor comes to me and he says, hey Carl, your trees are rubbing on my roof. Would you mind cutting them? Now I know my rights. I know, because I learned them from the lady. I don't want to brag. I cut my trees. That's pretty good stuff. That's pretty good. If you're asking me, I think that's pretty good neighbor. But well, let's read Jesus story. And Jesus, again, is speaking to a man who's not interested in knowing the truth, but in revealing that he has the truth. The Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. In the context of who Jesus is talking to in his audience, they very easily knew this story. This isn't unusual. Everybody's going to Jerusalem. It's, you know, kind of the, I guess this is mixing metaphors, but that's the Mecca. You know, that's where you go and... and That road between Jericho and Jerusalem was actually kind of famous for the bandits. So he he knows this story. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. And notice how Jesus is telling the story. So he's a Jewish guy, and a Jewish priest is going along. So we're talking about somebody that's kind of in the same fraternity at least. I mean, they're... They're they're familiar. We're not talking about some alien. This could have been one of his buddies. I don't know. But he crossed over to the other side of the road. And then a temple assistant walked over again. Somebody that's culturally similar. And looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, then a despised Samaritan came along. There, there is always, and I'm sure, I, I guess in every period of time, there is a, a group of people which it is accepted and it's okay to despise. I grew up in Alabama in the 60s. and i remember very clearly one time i was i was visiting my stepmother she worked as the receptionist in a doctor's office in north birmingham and north birmingham was had in the 40s and 50s transitioned but the doctor's office stayed there and it was I always just a really nice doctor's office. It was, you know, kind of that '60s modern sort of chrome furniture and naugahyde and very well lit, and it was nice. And I was there waiting for her to get off work, and I was getting a drink of water when her coworker came and grabbed me by the back of my shirt and pulled me away from the fountain. And she said, "Don't drink that. That's a..." And it starts with N. It's a terrible word, but a word that I heard every day of my life. It's one of those fountains. I, I know I was confused, I didn't understand, I couldn't under. I mean I knew what that meant, I mean because I, I was familiar with there was a fountain for white people and there was a fountain for people who weren't white, I, I knew that, but I, I didn't know that that was in this office. I thought it was, I thought it was a white doctor's office. And she said, come with me. And I had never seen this room and I, Went around the corner and she opened the door, and there was a room I had never seen, and it was packed. It was packed with people of color. And there were no bright lights or chrome furniture, but there were just wooden benches. And she didn't say anything and closed the door. I grew up in a time when it was acceptable in my family to despise a group of people. Although I was too young to. Necessarily understand why, I just grew up knowing that that's what you did. The Samaritan story is complicated, but it had been going on so long that it was no longer related to an actual offense. It was just a group of people that Jewish people hated. And so in Jesus' story, he makes the character a Samaritan. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Just so you know, I mean, this is not like a first century EMT. He's not you know, going around looking for people in ditches who have been beat up, and he has his little first aid kit. This is his stuff. This is the wine and the oil that he's going to need. I don't know this, but I got this hunch that the bandage is just something he tore off his own clothes to make. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he cared for him. This man who had been oppressed and people had even perhaps forgotten why, but it was just part of the culture. You oppressed Samaritans. You hated Samaritans. You were mean to Samaritans, and it was okay to be mean to Samaritans. And that guy is he's taking care of the Jewish guy. And then the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, "Take care of this man." if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Okay, Now this is a little over the top. Now you're nice people. Do you know anybody? Have you ever met someone who's anything like this guy? You see, the reason I feel like I'm a good neighbor is the same reason I feel like I'm a pretty good golfer. I've always golfed. I've always loved golf, but I've, I've never... I started in college, and it's just... It's something I did five, six, seven times a year. This last year, I decided... And I'm sorry, if you're not a golfer, you're going to be just bored to tears for just a, just a few moments. But, but this year, I don't know what... It was, I, was, I know, I was watching the Masters, which happens in the spring, first major tournament, speaking golf language here, I, design, I want to try to be a good golfer this year. Two weeks ago, I was coming to the 18th tee, that's the last hole you play. If I shot par, I was going to break 80, which is sort of a milestone for those of us wanting to become good golfers. It's a big event. I just had to shoot par. I took a 10 on that hole. A 10! A 10! And I'm distraught, I'm literally distraught, I'm all by myself, I'm not playing with anybody, I'm distraught. And then, it dawns on me. I get to keep my own score. (laughs) I can put anything I want down. Like that, I became a great golfer. (laughs) Suddenly I'm breaking 80, making birdies, I'm amazing. We, we have this instinct that we're pretty good neighbors. Because based on, I, I guess, the way we keep score, we probably are. You don't go do mean things to your neighbor. I'm sure you wave, you smile, you're somewhat helpful, if not aloof. But you don't wake up going, gosh, I wonder how I'm doing. So Jesus tells this story. And then Jesus, Jesus does the same thing. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? In the history of the world, no one's ever gone, I'm gonna go with number two. (laughs) I mean, at least he came and looked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. All right, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have, I'm, I'm, going, to create some, I'm going to create some questions I don't necessarily have answers to. But I could tell you where this, this story is troubling to me in the way that I've always heard it. Because you see, the question was, the question was, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And it sounds to me, at least the way it's always been told, that basically you become a person who's that kind of neighbor, so if the story is about being a person who would be willing to do that kind of sacrificial life to someone who had oppressed them, even as good a neighbor as I am, I'm, I mean, I'm hosed. The, 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 the difference is too dramatic. I, I, I could try, I could try, I could try. I don't think I'll ever be that kind of person. I wanna be, but I don't think I will. Which makes me think maybe most of the time I've thought about this story, i thought about the wrong guy. So I've always wondered, am I, which one of the three passerby am I? And it was a year ago, almost a year ago in eight days, that I discovered that there was another character in the story that I really relate to. And it's the guy asking the question who didn't really wonder but who was certain. Certainty is one of the things that has perhaps caused me the most damage. August 9th, 2009 was the last drink I took. I didn't start drinking alcohol until I was mid 20s. I went to sort of a fundamentalist Bible college. I grew up in a fundamentalist sort of experience, and, and alcohol was devil juice, and I didn't mess with it until I tasted it. I kind of liked the devil. And I didn't drink heavily by any means, but I drank progressively, and I drank consistently. And then about two years ago, really only about two years ago, I began to drink quite a bit. But I'm not a, I wasn't an alcoholic. I mean, I grew up in an alcoholic home. I know what alcoholics are. My mom's an alcoholic. I know what that looks like. That means you start drinking at noon, and you, you down gallons of wine, and you're passed out by six. I wasn't that. But every day, I had to sort of make sure that my last appointment was done around four. And then three, and then two. And then I started sort of drinking as much as I could between two and three so I could go to sleep and wake up before April got home. And then when April got home, I could have just a glass of wine with her and I I wasn't an alcoholic. Honestly, it never crossed my mind I never once said, Jesus, do you think i got a problem here? Can you help me? Until a year ago. I had this amazing gift to discover that I didn't have my life dialed in. And I didn't have all the answers. And that I was powerless. And unmanageable. which is a glorious experience knowing that I was right has led to every big fight I ever had with my wife every friend I ever lost and every job that I probably failed at the story is, to me, somewhat transparent. There is only one who has the kind of extravagant mercy to heap it on in a way that is not even imaginable. And Jesus offers that, not to the wise and the clever, to those who have it dialed in, who don't really question or have any need but to the children. Children don't lack confidence. I mean, they dance when you're watching. They're confident. But they're not certain. When they ask you a question, it's not so they can show you how stupid you are. It's because they want to know. And they trust you with an answer. And so the the gift of this extravagant mercy is given to those who are simply willing to say I don't have it dialed in. I don't really know the right answer but I know who does. Let me pray for us. And for me. Thank you for the gift, the offer you make to us to to not have to have it together, not to have to have right answers, not to have to have that facade, but to take our, our childlikeness, our woundings, our brokenness, our pain. And you, Jesus, I I know you pour on us the very resources you have. Your own oil, your own wine. You would pay any price to take care of us. And you heal us. You heal us from ourselves. So that's what we give back to you, all that we are. Amen.
2: Thanks, Carl. Um, This morning, because I was stressed about coming back to work and having to preach, I read John chapter eight, which is what we're talking about next. And this verse is in John chapter eight. The um, religious people come to Jesus and they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And I love his answer. He answers, well, I don't have a demon because he is a Samaritan. He's the one on the other side of the fence. And scripture also tells us that he is the judge. He's the judgment and this table is his judgment. And so this is the judgment. He, he I think, I think he, he, he says to us, so uh, would you drink from this fountain? Would you let me, anoint your wounds, bandage them with my righteousness, my clothes? Would you admit that you're on the side of the road, good as dead, till I come along? And so on the night that he was betrayed, given up, Actually despised by this entire world, if you read the story carefully, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let me anoint you with this. Let me give you my spirit. Uh, My oil, let me give you my life. And so, if you want him, he's calling you to this fountain. And if you don't want him, he's still calling you to this fountain. He's mighty persistent. But we invite you this morning to come to, to his judgment of mercy and receive his life. Let him anoint your wounds, and wash you with his wine, and fill you with his oil, because he... Scripture says this, Jesus said this, no one is good but God alone. Jesus is good, and he wants to give you his goodness. In his name, believe the gospel and live. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice, both mercy. Let's worship.